Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. That's the most important thing when I talk to someone who's got an idea, that they start thinking right at the beginning about all those factors. First of all, what kind of resolution we need and want. You know, how big of a graphic array if you're trying to make a tablet for the blind, which is something we're working on also. Color contrast, if it's a low vision person versus a blind person, you know, you know, heights, you know, like you mentioned 2D. What about multiple heights for a relief map or some kind of chemistry molecule? Um, and obviously the durability that it'll, it'll hold up. Portability, which is everyone wants nowadays. And most importantly, the manufacturing design so that it can be mass produced without a lot of difficulty. There are many issues that go into the design of next-generation Braille displays, and we'll be talking about some of those initiatives today. The National Braille Press, or NBP, is well known for its mission of promoting Braille literacy and producing a variety of Braille books for all ages and interests. Perhaps less well-known is their program to advance technologies for producing Braille. We'll speak with Brian McDonald, president and CEO of the NBP and also lead of the Center for Braille Innovation about these efforts. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Brian McDonald. I guess my tip of the week would be that Braille is alive for the long run and everyone needs to support it. And the National Braille Press has been a real advocate for promoting Braille literacy from very young ages to make sure that people know Braille, because it is an important means of communications, especially for professionals later on in life. And it's a great medium for becoming proficient at grammar and spelling and layout and all of the other things that come along with being a literate individual. If you can't read print, Braille is a great alternative. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by APHConnectCenter.org, empowering people toward independence and success by providing blogs, information, and resources for individuals of all ages who are blind or visually impaired. Information and referral line are at one 800 2325463 You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Let's start by meeting Brian and learning about the National Braille Press in general. We're happy to have today's guest on who's been here before. And Brian, I thought maybe for people who don't know you, you can introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Well, thank you. Uh, my name is Brian McDonald. I'm the president and CEO of National Braille Press in Boston. And um, I do a lot of everything. Uh, I certainly oversee our strategic direction and manage our operations, but I also work in every aspect of trying to make sure that we are out there supporting our main mission of Braille and tactile literacy. And are you a user of Braille yourself? I am sighted. So I don't really say I can read Braille um, because I don't feel proficient at it and I don't practice enough, to be honest. So I'll just leave it at that. But um, maybe someday I'll, I will be proficient. 
So give us an overview of the National Braille Press. You talk about your mission being to promote Braille, but you do that in many ways. Yeah, so uh, we were founded in 1927 as a newspaper for the blind in Boston. And our original charter when we were incorporated as a nonprofit was to promote, quote unquote, finger reading in the United States and Canada. I don't know how that happened for a U.S. approval, but um, but we certainly evolved over time. And our, our main interest is, yes, making sure that Braille and we I don't want to get into long discussions on Braille literacy, but uh, it's as you know, there's a lot of importance to that for especially for children to learn grammar and sentence structure and all that. But in our perspective, it's making sure that we can provide the content and materials to support Braille learning and lifelong learning for adults with the books that we produce and publish. And we've certainly availed ourselves of several of your programs over the years, both with your Children's Braille Book Club, where where you produce these print Braille books that I was able to share with my sighted children and read books to them. And then even as a professional, you made many books and manuals that were relevant to my work as a research scientist, including Kernigan and Ritchie's C manual. So that was great. Well, we do. Uh, again, we, over time, we've evolved to do a lot more technology books, but also books on travel and cooking and leisure and all the regular subjects that everybody wants. And it has been important where we've provided programs like the Children's Braille Book Club in other aspects. For instance, we also have a Read Books program that was really important for families of children that were either born blind or losing vision to understand the importance of Braille and pictures and tactiles um, so that they'd have an opportunity to get a free book bag that has this content for them and a primer on how they can get a jump start to help their children to start learning the bumpy basics of Braille. And another genre of books that you publish are ones where the National Braille Press actually creates the content. And we've done a number of shows on a variety of books about exercise, about using a cell phone, about all sorts of stuff. That's true. And we try to have a broad range of topics that are of interest to our consumers and um, we, we do as broad a spectrum as we can that we think will be popular. How did you get involved in the field of blindness and Braille? My whole career has been in science, to be honest. I worked, I, I was a biology undergrad. I went to graduate school for environmental oceanography. And I worked uh, in that field initially uh, with instrumentation. Um, and then I worked at at the New England Aquarium for 20 years. And then I was at Audubon and I got recruited from a, the national search here. I had no background in the blindness community, with the exception that my grandmother was blind. And that story is long, but she basically, she lost her vision at age 22 during the 1918 H1N1 when it went to Hawaii, where she was from. And I remember her sitting me on her lap when I was probably like seven years old teaching me Braille while she was reading scriptures. She was a very religious woman. So when I had a call from the headhunter from New York City about National Braille Press, I immediately thought of my grandmother. Anyway, so I went through two months with a gauntlet of interviewing with the headhunters, and I'm finally going to come to meet the board and search committee for National Braille Press. And as I'm driving down Massachusetts Avenue, the world headquarters for the Christian Science church was on my left. Well, I took a right to go down St. Stephen Street. 
And my grandmother, we used to take her to church there every Sunday when she lived with us because she was a Christian scientist. So it just seemed like an interesting little nuance and karma about my introduction to National Braille Press. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is the National Braille Press's Center for Braille Innovation and some of the exciting technologies they've been working on. Well, today, Brian, we wanted to focus primarily on your Center for Braille Innovation, probably one of the programs that are less visible to many of the patrons who are buying some of your books and manuals and all. So can you give us an overview of what the Center for Braille Innovation is all about? Um, Yes, thank you. I will. When I started back in 2008, at that point, refreshable Braille displays averaged around $6,000 each, somewhere as high as $8,000. And I was concerned early on that the future of Braille could be in jeopardy if technology continued as it did for the print market with publishers struggling and everything online and everything. So I wanted to find a way to make more affordable, refreshable Braille displays so that children and families could have access to them, not just corporate people and some wealthy communities that could get access to them. And I wanted to accomplish a few things. One, to leverage emerging technologies that were coming available and how that may help to make a more affordable Braille display and put a little pressure on the market too, because um, more competition creates better improvements and better pricing, hopefully for the consumers. So I also wanted to identify universities that were doing research in these areas and help partner with them to keep that promising research alive. Because often I found that a postdoc or a PhD student would find a clever way to do something and he'd go on, graduate or get a career job and it would just fall in a wastebasket. And so we wanted to make sure that we could work with them to form a company perhaps or or get rights to it or keep the project alive uh, within the university to bring it to an end market product. That's an interesting perspective. We've talked to many people at universities doing research, and it's very interesting. You think, wow, this might go someplace, but it often disappears as soon as the students working on it graduate. Or the professor moves to a different college, and and that is lost also. Yes, yes. um, Yeah, so so that was really important. And so anyway, long story short is I, I reached out to people. Again, I was new at National Braille Press, new to the blindness community, to try and create a a community uh, as a center for Braille innovation. And I, the first person I reached out to who you I'm certainly know and have talked to is Dean Blasey. Oh yes. Um, you know, he's really kind of the pioneer of Braille technology as far as making a very successful company with Blasey engineering. Um, so I called him up and I said, I'm the new guy at NBP. You know, you, you certainly changed the world with your refreshable Braille displays, but I said, you know, they're pretty expensive. And would you help me, explore making a newer and more affordable device. So he flew up and met me in Boston and we talked for the day and he said, you know, my non-compete after I sold my company is over. It last ended last month. I'm in, I want to help. And you know, that was years ago. So he volunteered to help us create eventually the Braille to go B2G that we did at launch to 
back in 2016. And now he's a good personal friend and we've traveled all over the place together. And during this time period, presenting and giving lectures and meeting focus group people. And we ended up having 25 people part of that committee. And for people who may not remember the B2G that you made, this was essentially a lower cost Braille display built on an Android system. That's correct. You know, again, as I said, they were averaging about $6,000. We sold it for 2495 That was still a lot of money, but it was a, a pusher on the market, at least. And it had a lot of great features. You know, it had Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, GPS, a camera. Uh, we created a really good word editor for it that could even show track changes for a blind person with insertions, deletions, and timestamps. So, you know, it did what I wanted to accomplish to help put pressure on the market, to have more competition, and and to get National Braille Press more known for being more in the tech field. So uh, mission accomplished on that. And what is the status of the B2G these days? The technologies change pretty quickly. Oh, yes. So we did. We sold all of them in, in our production run, and we knew that, you know, technology changes very fast. And we made the decision to continue partnering in this market and in technology areas, but not to make a product on our own again, because the challenges of the hardware more than the software are what can croak you, you know, having multi-core processors and, and everything needs to be faster and all the time. And we just said, let's, let's find a better way to do this with other partners and, and go from there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great model. It's very difficult and expensive and resource intensive to develop hardware because it does change so quickly. It requires a lot of expertise and just a lot of development costs. And then you got to refresh it as the technology matures. Right, exactly. Yeah. So what's your model now? How do you work some of this technology development? You say you partner with other people? Yeah, so we've continued to be heavily involved in this market and our, our Center for Braille Innovation is still alive. Every year we do an update on all the Braille and technology research in the world that's being done by private researchers, universities, and individuals. And we reach out to them. We look for them to be, you know, what they're doing as far as potential for becoming a product and where they stand if they need funding. Um, and, and same thing with, we have a touch of genius prize that um, we've adapted over time that it isn't just technology, but we put a lot more emphasis in technology to get people aware of that, to try and mentor with them and, and bring things to market. And what is your touch of genius prize? It's a prize that was originally funded by the Gibney family foundation and Initially, it was anything related to Braille and tactile literacy, pretty broad, and it still is. Um, we've done curriculum winners. We've had hardware, obviously, done similar to like the B2G, but it, it doesn't have to be. Sometimes it's a very simple product. A couple of years ago, we gave an award to a product called Can Doables, which I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but it's a 3D printed Braille label for cans of different sizes that snap right on the can of peas versus beans or or canning jars or small little pasta sauce ones. And we thought it was very simple, but ingenious and that fit the prize. So it's not always high tech or software. It, it can sometimes be a very simple idea. So with the prize, you're essentially encouraging innovation and then also giving these people a platform to make their product or innovation more widely known. That's correct. What's interesting is like one winner a few years ago was uh, the Canute, which was a multi-line display out of the UK. And 
Ed Rogers uh, founded that company and, and he was obviously grateful to get a prize, but he said, you know, the prestige of the Touch of Genies prize over all these years was just as important to us as was getting the money. So it, it helps in different ways for different organizations or individuals. So as we mentioned, technology has changed a whole lot over the past few years, and we've seen here and there little creative ideas that seem like they might be interesting for new, less expensive Braille displays, 2D Braille displays, etc. I wonder if you can share with us some of the ideas that you think are most promising in the works these days. Yes, of course. And some of them it's interesting. Some of the methods have been around for a long time, but they're improved because of either miniaturization or technology or better circuitry. But yeah, and I'll just to answer part of this, um, Peter, before I go on. So one of our Touch of Genius Prize winners was the Braille Me, which is a low-cost Braille display from India. And we still distribute that now. Uh, there's been definitely some supply chain problems uh, with COVID in the last year or so, but but it was one of those cases where I met with them a year and a half before they won the prize and helped give them suggestions to make the product better. They literally showed me a 3D printed version of it. Even the pins were made in, with a 3D printer and it worked. And it was using uh, magnetics. It was the first, you know, one of the very first magnetic solutions for actuating a Braille dot that seemed to be, it would be successful. Well, that's sort of like the dot watch technology. Well, exactly. The dot, exactly. I was going to say 2016, the dot watch dot is dot incorporated from Korea and they're using magnetics and they've evolved a lot since then. I, in fact, I just met with them a couple of weeks ago um, in, in their electronic technology for uh, OEMing Braille cells, even for different other products and companies. Uh, but, but other methods that are interesting uh, and still promising are, MEMS technology, um, which is micro machines, basically, that have potential to make a, a low cost and, and large array of Braille dots. Um, I'm working with someone at Draper Labs about that. There's also a couple other magnetic approaches that I think are interesting that I'm working with. One's in Germany, which I can't talk about, but um, there's one uh, called Beacon Street Innovations that I'm meeting with them again this Friday. MIT is working on some pretty cool things too that I can't talk about, but they've even come up. Sorry, I can't talk a lot of these because the things are, you know, under NDAs and stuff. But graphene, there's potential to use graphene that can be very thin layer, a carbon array, as some people may know about it. But with with a method that the even a thin layer could actually be evolved to have a Braille dot substrate come out of it. And that would be incredible when you talk about thicknesses of machines uh, today. MIT was working uh, on a ceramic. Shape memory allies are one area where metal can change its shape as you put a current through it or heat and then come back to that original shape. Uh, Same with the material they created, which was a ceramic-based material that could change shape and then rebound, which is and extraordinary. So there's a lot of really cool things coming out, um, whether they all will work or not, and whether I can convince them to make a, a Braille device besides just something that'll work in a jet engine or something under high stress, <laughs> you know, but, um, but that's my job. Find out what it, what's out there, meet them, see what potential opportunities there are and what grants might be of interest to match that and see if we can bring something unique to market. 
So those technologies you talked about were primarily shape-shifting technologies to make the Braille bump. But I remember in our last conversation when we talked with you, you discussed the technology where they're essentially using some kind of electrostatics on a screen to have you be touch-sensitive to what was on the screen. Has that been developed any further? It's had a little bit of pause with COVID. Um, There were three companies that were working on it. Disney Research was the one I was working with at quite a bit of length. And just like I talked about with our Center for Braille Innovation, the person who was in charge of that project left. Disney was looking at it from a point of view of making really exciting tactile images for their Disney World kind of you know, consumer. Uh, but we, we were certainly looking at it from a Braille point of view and from a flexibility point of view. And it worked pretty well. There was still another level of research we wanted to do. But when Disney dropped it, he actually ended up going to another company. And I just spoke to him about two months ago. I'm I'm still trying to get rights to it <laughs> with Disney. And so uh, I, I, it's not over yet, but in that case, it's, it's on a pause. Um, but it, I know Tanvis was work, working on it. That's another company. And in Finland, there's one that was sold to another company in, in France. So I'm, it's not dead, but it it's bounced around, not like I had hoped. But I still think it has promise for sure. Yeah. Well, some of these technologies, you just have to try them out and see which one breaks through the barrier. And, you know, there's more to just having a creative idea. Once it comes to the market, it has to be able to be made in kind of a mass production environment. It has to be robust and not break after being used for years. So there's a lot of considerations once you get past the initial idea. Oh, absolutely. Obviously, your your Xerox background ties into a lot of these things. So that's the most important thing when I talk to someone who's got an idea that they start thinking right at the beginning about all those factors. First of all, what kind of resolution we need and want, you know, how big of a graphic array, if you're trying to make a tablet for the blind, which is something we're working on also color contrast, if it's a low vision person versus a blind person, you know, you know, heights, you know, like you mentioned 2d, what about multiple heights for a relief map or some kind of chemistry molecule, um, and obviously the durability that it'll hold up, portability, which is everyone wants nowadays, and most importantly, the manufacturing design so that it can be mass produced without a lot of difficulty. Those are all big problems. <laughs> <laughs> and not for nothing, but people touch these displays. That's the whole point. And so it needs to hold up to lateral forces and accumulated dirt and other stuff. It's exactly true. And that's the other part of it. How can you repair easily a cell or a module, you know, and how bulletproof is it for spilling milk on it or tea or whatever, (laughs) all those kinds of factors. I've done that on Braille displays. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't a cheap fix. Fortunately, I was working at Xerox at the time and they paid for the repair. (laughs) (laughs) No, it happens. You know, accidents happen. But anyway, it's it's fun. I love the challenge of it. And I love looking at, I love technology personally. When there's ways to help bring something to market, it's really rewarding. Um, but, but again, in all these cases, it has to be affordable. If it's not affordable, you might as well just give up. Metech in Germany is a really well-known Braille cell company. We used it in our B2G. Their Braille cells were so durable and reliable. They were unbelievable. Um, and they made one of the very first large graphic displays, multi like a tablet for the blind. 
But when they launched it, they wanted 40,000 euro for it. Wow. wow. What? You're like, how can that be? Um, so obviously it didn't go well. And then they shrunk it to smaller versions at a lower price, but then you're compromising the purpose of the graphic array. Like how much can you fit, you know, from a visual point of view to tactually feel if it's a small array, you know, like it's, those are the challenges that software can help with, but there's many, many complex factors to it, like you said, Peter. And, and that's, that's, what's kind of fun with helping people understand those challenges at the beginning and then working through them to, and then make perhaps some compromises that you have to based on cost and timeframes and, and all those things. Yeah. And it's also interesting when you're talking about Braille displays, this is really in some sense, kind of a niche market. It's not like Apple and you're going to sell a hundred million Braille displays and can take advantage of the economy of scales when you're making these things. These are really small markets. So cost is really a factor. It, it absolutely is. And even worldwide, though, that, you know, I would say two years ago, yeah, there's, you know, 45 million blind people in the world. And granted, they don't all read Braille. So even if it was 10% or 4 million or 5 million, whatever the case may be, that's a bigger market than the U.S. However, nowadays, with the challenges of shipping and complexities of the whole supply chain, you know, you, you can't even manage repairs properly, never mind getting things to market in other countries. It's just another animal and challenge to deal with. Yeah. Well, you guys are doing a great job and good luck in pursuing all these ideas. And someday things will get better. We'll have cheaper, more affordable displays and bigger displays, et cetera. Well, yes, and we have. I feel good even that the Orbit and the Braille Me are at $500. That's less than us than iPhone today and versus the 2500 we did and the 6000 prior to that. So, granted it doesn't do all the features of, you know, a robust Braille display, but it puts the hands in a lot of people that could never afford them before for reading and learning to read better as children would be for literacy. So, we've made progress for sure. Great. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about the National Braille Press and how to contact them in general and Brian McDonald in particular. Well, Brian, if people want to find out more about the National Braille Press, where would you send them? Well, our website is easy enough. It's nbp.org for National Braille Press. We're at Braille Press on Twitter. Instagram's at National Braille Press. We're on LinkedIn and Facebook, easy to find. So um, that's our social media areas. But um, I can give my information too. Uh, if anyone wants to reach out to me with questions or anything, it's just P-R-E-S, Prez at NBP.org. And um, I'll get that directly. And of course, you can find all of that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. And if you're looking for other shows that we did about the National Braille Press, just type NBP into the search field on our website and you'll find those episodes. We've also talked about a number of the Braille books published by the National Braille Press, and those books will also come up when you search with the keyword NBP. 
That's it for show number 2236. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about blind parenting of a sighted child. What is it like to raise a sighted child when one of the parents is blind? That's the question Ron and Denise Miller asked us back in 2015. We talked with the Millers about our experiences raising sighted children and aired a show based on that discussion. Now, seven years later, we follow up with Ron to see how it's been going for him and his family. This was a fun follow-up to our discussion a long time ago, and it's always nice to see how things turned out. So if you want to find out how it did turn out, join us next week for that episode. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.